This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Just when we think we may, may be getting a handle on this COVID thing, an uninvited guest shows up to the dinner party. Delta Plus, sub-variant of the Delta variant, is starting to show up in the UK, and it could prove to be more transmissible. We will also go in-depth on a report of human remains found on a trail in a Florida nature preserve could belong to Brian Laundrie. That's the person wanted for questioning for weeks now in uh, the murder of his girlfriend, Gabby Petito. And this holiday shopping season starting to look like a bleak one. Retailers and shippers are sounding the alarm on potentially empty store shelves by Christmas. Up in the Bay Area, it's in and out versus San Francisco's public health department. The chain's only location in the city refusing to enforce the indoor vaccine mandate. The L.A. Zoo has big expansion plans. It's not sitting well with environmentalists. They don't want to see acres of Griffith Park gobbled up. And after years of promises, diversity may finally be coming to the Grammy Awards. But we start with Delta Plus. Dr. Francois Bayou directs the University College London Genetics Institute. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Delta Plus does, we were, we were sort of joking before, it sounds a little bit like something you might get extra at an airline. Yeah, you get the upgrade. It's yeah, you get Delta the upgrade. Plus. But this is not necessarily good, is it? Well, <laughs> no, it's not fantastic. Actually, strictly speaking, it shouldn't be called Delta Plus. It's actually, it has a pretty okay name at the moment. It's called AI.4.2. And well, that runs is, right off your tongue, uh, doesn't easy, it? <laughs> easy to say. Yeah, that's easy to say. Go ahead. <laughs> Which, sure. But let's say if it's really concerning, so if there's confirmation that it's more transmissible, then it will get a, a nice Greek name. But at the moment, I think we should probably refer to it with its really obscure moniker because we're not absolutely sure at this stage how much more transmissible it is compared to Delta. Okay, how do we know about it? In the UK, obviously, we're seeing kind of a rise in cases recently. Is that being attributed to to whatever this is? And to find out what you're talking about in terms of transmissibility and all that and how bad it is, is that just a matter of kind of waiting and seeing? No. Um, So cases have gone up in the UK, but we don't think cases have gone up because of this lineage. So it's not causing the increase because it's still at pretty low frequency. So even if it's maybe 10% more more transmissible, that still creates a very small extra number of cases because it's still rare. So the increase in case numbers in the UK is not caused by this new variant. I think that's important. And probably what's also important to keep in mind here, we're talking about something fairly subtle. It's not something like the alpha variant or the delta variant, which was something like 50, 60 percent more transmissible, massive increase in transmissibility. Here we're talking about something like 10 percent. So I'm not saying it's great, but let's say it's not the same kind of, of, of ballpark figure. It's, it's really it's a, it's a more minor an annoyance rather than I say major drama. Now I know we have I think uh, seven or eight cases uh, last night anyway uh, that have shown up here in the U.S. Is the Delta variant itself now so predominant that uh, for another variant to come along and really supplant it, that variant would have to be significantly different? Yeah, the Delta variant has been extremely successful, and essentially it's present everywhere. It's dominant everywhere. It's 99% of the case in the UK, in the US. And 
I think at this stage it's relatively unlikely that we see a completely different band. What we're seeing is a lot of evolution within Delta. Actually, Delta is super diverse now because these lineages, they accumulate about two mutations a month, and there are 45 sub-lineages within Delta. Um, I won't bore you, it's, it's absolutely horrible nomenclature, but there's a lot of diversity. And so far within Delta, we really haven't seen anything that seemed different, a bit more transmissible. And that's the first time with this sublineage that we're seeing something that might be more transmissible. And sure, there are now a handful of cases in the U.S. So okay news for people who have had their shots and are going to get their boosters. Uh, still bad news if you are running around unvaccinated. Well, definitely, but that's, I think that's irrespective of the strain. I, I really, really recommend to everyone to get vaccinated before being affected, especially before being affected. But I think, yes, I, I, it reduces, let's say, the risk of severe symptoms and of death quite massively. So I think there's no doubt about that. So Delta, Delta Plus or whatever obscure uh, lineage, yes, I, I recommend to everyone to get vaccinated. I, I am curious, uh, doctor, are, are there any strains out there in the world that, you know, that are sort of on the radar screen for experts such as yourself that maybe the general public is not yet aware of, but gives you cause for concern? We had a few that that seemed maybe potentially concerning. So at some point we had beta and gamma, you probably remember that. Then we had mu, which might sounded a bit kind of, well, seemed a bit problematic. We had one in South Africa, which was a bit dodgy, but the Delta really is so transmissible, so effective. Essentially none of these really make it. And uh, well, that's an option, well, daughter lineage of Delta, which might be marginally more transmissible, maybe not, but no, at the moment, there seems to be nothing on the horizon that that worries us in particular outside Delta, which is worrying enough to be fair. Yeah. Dr. Francois Bayou directs the University College London Genetics Institute. So it's kind of like a good news, bad news thing. Yeah. Yeah. The Biden administration piecing together an ambitious plan to vaccinate your young child against COVID-19 when we come back. Listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, L.A. environmentalists versus the L.A. Zoo over the zoo's ambitious expansion plans, in and outs versus San Francisco over refusal to enforce the indoor vaccine mandates there. Right now, though, Biden administration has a nationwide plan to vaccinate some 28 million kids between the ages of 5 and 11 against COVID-19. And in many ways, this effort is going to be much more complicated than the original vaccination effort for adults. With us now is Dr. Alice Quo is a professor of pediatric medicine and director of the UCLA Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Uh, well, uh, trickier uh, than adults, I suspect. Uh, why so? Well, you, um, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, I'm happy to be back. And um, it's a little bit uh, more complicated because children, um, you know, especially the younger ones, five, six years old, might be a little more fearful. I think parents also may prefer to have these vaccinations in their trusted pediatrician's office as opposed to a mass vaccination site like, you know, that we had earlier in the spring. And so um, I think, you know, as a pediatrician, I'm very 
grateful that the uh, Biden administration has been um, more thoughtful about how to get these vaccines in multiple settings that parents can choose uh, what would be best for their children, particularly the younger ones. Yeah. Do you expect to be able to give it to kids at, at your practice? I mean, how easy is it going to be for pediatricians or will parents just end up having to go to some community center or a hospital system if if their doctor that they usually go to just doesn't have it? Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, I'm here at UCLA, and so we are fully prepared to be able to administer the vaccine in all of our sites. Um, We have the Pfizer vaccine, which is currently the only one that's going to be available for this age group. Um, But I am also signed up for a few school-based clinics um, supporting some of our local community areas. And I think that, um, you know, the smaller pediatric offices that may not have already gotten sort of, you know, trained and, and used to giving it may continue not to, but with between pharmacies and other um, larger pediatric offices, as well as some of the public health sites and the school-based clinics, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities and options for families to uh, choose one of them that that best suits their needs. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe that it's a smaller dose that's going to be given of the Pfizer vaccine to uh, young children than given uh, adults. But that said, uh, I'm also sure that some parents are going to wonder about side effects. Uh, true. So yes, it is a weight-based dose um, that's going to be adjusted for um, the smaller size of children between the ages of 5 and 11. Um, side effects, I think, will be the same as some of our older kids. You know, obviously with any immunization, any vaccination that is delivered through a needle, there is pain at the local site, maybe a little bit of soreness. Um, in my personal clinical experience, I feel as though most of the kids that were vaccinated in the 12 to 17 age group had little to no side effects. Um, Very rarely did I have a patient that sort of did have like more flu-like symptoms or headache, Um, but really the vast majority, you know, almost like most of the kids I saw um, had no effects. Maybe they're too busy to notice. I don't know exactly. Um, But uh, generally with COVID vaccine, what we've seen in everyone over the age of 12 is uh, the indication that your immune system is working. So sometimes a low-grade fever, sometimes that flu-like muscle body ache kind of feeling, but very self-limited, lasting only uh, a few days, um, very rarely anything beyond that. Once it gets the authorization, is time still kind of of the essence because we are headed into winter? Absolutely. And, you know, it's been very gratifying, I have to say, that um, people are thinking about that. And we are seeing a lot uh, just here in the Los Angeles area of uh, non-COVID upper respiratory infections. So kids coming in with cough, runny nose, congestion, the whole family sick. Uh, Just yesterday, I swabbed a whole family of four because they all have symptoms. Um, But, you know, most of it is actually not COVID yet. Um, But we are concerned that, you know, things are starting to get transmitted because kids are spending more time inside, it's cooling off already, you know, they're playing outdoors a little bit less. And so as the colder weather sets in, people are going to be spending more time inside and then that that chance of transmission is going to be there. 
So do you give, when you give the shots to the little kids, do you give them like a lollipop? I didn't get a lollipop. <laughs> well, so the interesting thing is, you know, a few, uh, maybe 10 or so years ago with the obesity epidemic, we didn't want to reward with ah. you know, candy. <laughs> but we give lots of stickers, <laughs> lots of stickers, Avenger stickers, you know, um, Doc McStuffins, you know, a lot of... Uh, but no lollipops. No, those huh? have been phased yeah, out. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the dentists don't like it when we do that. And, uh, <laughs> People looking at, yeah. at, at, at over, overweight issues don't like that. So we give non uh, non candy type of. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, no calls from the dentist across the street. <laughs> Dr. Alice Quo, a professor of pediatric medicine, director of the UCLA Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health. I don't know, no, no lollipops. Huh. I go and get ice cream after I get oh, shots. Is that, is that what you do? It's my reward to myself. So you reward yourself? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. That's Lo- called being an adult. <laughs> Yeah, do what you want. Uh, Lumps of coal in your stocking might actually be the only option for Christmas gifts this year. Why? Because supply chain headaches getting worse. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Coming up at the end of today is In-Depth. After years of promises, diversity might finally be coming to the Grammys. We'll explain how. Before that, a new FDA rule might make it far easier for someone to get a hearing aid and might spur much-needed new innovation. Right now, though, get used to seeing these signs at the stores, the notices on the online shopping websites over the next couple months. Item out of stock, shipping delays, likely continuing supply chain headaches going to make this holiday shopping season and a rather grim one. Steve Scales, director in the retail practice at the consultancy firm Alex Partners. Steve, thanks for being here. So I guess we're kind of running the clock, right? Because people or retailers that are going to have stuff on the shelves actually would need it to start coming through uh, pretty soon, and we're not seeing it. Correct. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, what, uh, what you need to see is retailers to be bringing product into their local warehouses and into their supply chains now. Um, And as we've seen with delays upstream in the supply chain, that's not happening. And these are, these are moving in slower than expected, which will absolutely at this point start to impact what is available on the shelf in a timely manner. So why are we having this? And it really is a global problem. Is it the pandemic? Is it uh, worker shortages, a combination? Why, Why is this going on now? Really what you're seeing is disruption on top of disruption. And the modern supply chain has really built into a quite lean operation where disruptions at any one point can cause more of a whiplash looking forward and looking into other areas. And what you're seeing is an an extreme example of that. Uh, Some COVID-related and some of this is just the building of the various, various pieces along the chain. When we talk holidays, you know, get the Christmas presents out, a lot of that stuff, I mean, toys and some electronics, even like iPhones, they come from Asia. And what, the time to get things is like doubled in the past year. So we're going to have a lot of troubles around the holiday shopping season. I guess what, buy early if you can find stuff? Because if you're one of the last minute types, then uh, have fun. Correct. Yes. What we've seen for for product imported from Asia, um, the container time, so the time to transport from Asia to get to local warehouses has more than doubled from what we saw pre-pandemic a couple years ago. Um, And that's not something that's necessarily taken into account uh, when buyers were making decisions on when to place purchase orders six, nine months ago. And so that's really what what the challenge is. 
I expect what we're going to start to see is a little bit of a shift in mindset for holiday shopping. Um, it, it's going to stretch. I think we're going to see less of the immediate discounts at Black Friday, and I think those last minute uh, that expectation that you can buy something very last minute is going to be difficult to fulfill. Well, I mean, so so people who are, I mean, for example, I just read something the other day, uh, actually it was on TV somewhere, uh, where a woman who owns a store uh, said that she had just gotten notice that some of the items that she was planning to have in her store window for Christmas shopping, she was told she was going to get at the end of February. I mean, is that is that the sort of thing? Christmas in July. Yeah, yeah, I mean, wow. <laughs> That's a that's probably an extreme example, uh, but especially small shippers are being impacted more so than larger ones that have uh, have more negotiating leverage and, and can handle other options. Um, but really, what you're seeing is is supply chains are designed between now and the end of the year really to operate at peak capacity, and so going into that peak season already behind, already seeing some bottlenecks. It's not going to immediately fix itself. This is not something that can unwind quickly. Um, and I do expect that it's going to take us until uh, Q1 of next year for some of this to get back to, quote unquote, normal to where you're starting to see service times and, and material flowing the way that we've seen in the past. Some of the big guys are like chartering their own ships. I, CNBC was out on the water and there was a Walmart ship like, well, the, the ship wasn't. But every container on the boat was a Walmart container because they just tried to get everything they could, at least in the vicinity. And then they still have to wait to get in. Correct. Yeah, you definitely are seeing some um, creative methods. Uh, so, yes, some of the larger shippers are, are, are chartering vessels. We're seeing an increase in air shipments, things that normally would, would travel on a, on a ship or being air freighted over. Um, lots of options that people are looking to grasp at both capacity and to increase the, uh, increase the timeliness of these shipments. All right, Steve Scales, director in the uh, retail practice at the consultancy firm Alex Partners. Steve, thanks. Well, when we continue, it's the great in and out San Francisco story. We'll tell you what that's about. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So by and large, enforcement of San Francisco's indoor vaccine mandate has been going pretty smoothly, but then we have this controversy in and out, you know, the fast food chain. It has just one store in San Francisco, and that one store was not checking the vaccination status of customers coming in. So then the public health department temporarily shut it down. And uh, that was earlier this week. Now it's just takeout only. Sorry, guys. Yeah, that In-N-Out is located in San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf Wharf area. And as Mike just said, uh, you can go if you're up there and get takeout, but you can't go and sit in the restaurant. Lori Thomas is executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. Lori, thanks for being with us. So uh, what is behind the the, uh, In-N-Out stance that it won't check the vaccination status of its uh, customers? Well, um, thanks for having me. And, you know, I I, I can't speak on on their behalf. I think they've done that already. But um, they have been the only uh, business that has had any issues with this. Uh, And we're two months into two months into the the proof of vax mandate to dine inside. And so no one else has has seemingly had a problem with it. They say they refuse to be the vaccination police. And and I guess the only other rule is to, to go take out only so 
Right. So, you know, this is a pretty clear mandate. We, we know that San Francisco has been on the cutting edge of, you know, um, taking extreme measures, but we've had pretty good health responses. Um, our membership, and we represent mostly independent restaurants, in and out just to be clear, uh, is not a member. Uh, they could be, but they're not an active member right now of our organization. And um, we polled our teams, or our, our membership, excuse me, at the end of July, and also again um, at the first part of, um, in September actually. And, you know, 78, 79% of everybody responding did not have any significant issues uh, with customers. Yes, we've had a few on and off, you know, make some comments about it, but uh, people have been offered to dine outside. Uh, you don't even need to wear a mask if you're sitting in an outside dining area, let alone show proof of vaccine. So that's been an accommodation. Um, I, I wonder if this isn't, you know, more of a political stance that they've taken. Do you get any sense that uh, any of your membership is thinking of following the lead of, of in and out Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I, we haven't had anybody make those statements. Um, you know, people have complied. Um, one of the things our members really wanted was for it to be a level playing field, for this to be a city mandate. People didn't feel comfortable making their own decisions on what they should do because, say, Lori was doing it and Jonathan wasn't. It would cause confusion. And so with this um, mandate, which works for bars and, and restaurants dining inside, um, it's very clear. You have to show proof of vaccine for every member of your dining party who is uh, 12 and over so that we can, uh, you know, check proof of that. And kids can come in younger than that. They just need to have a mask on. I'm wondering if, you know, I mean, the Internet loves a controversy, right? So you've got a whole bunch of people posting in and out refuses to go along with vaccine mandate. Hooray for in and out But is the other headline mm-hmm. in and out gets caught not doing something they were supposed to be doing. Well, sure. And, you know, I was given a heads up on this, that the health department was actively working with them for up to two weeks to educate them as to what they were doing. So this is not lack of education. This is a, again, I believe it's probably a political stance. It's gotten them a lot of uh, press, I would say. <laughs> They've gotten a lot of press in the in the past couple of days on this. So, so I guess that... Well, that, that was accomplished. Well, well, Laurie, I, I mean, when you, when you talk about there, it may be a, a political statement uh, that may be borne uh-huh. out by, you know, they, of course, have issued a, a statement and it's rather lengthy. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read a very small part of it. It sure. says that that we this is from in and out. We fiercely disagree with any government dictate that forces a private company to discriminate against customers who choose to patronize their business. This is clear governmental overreach and is intrusive, improper and offensive. And again, that's partly uh, what their statement uh, is. So perhaps you're, you're correct in, in your assessment that this has more to do with, with politics than anything else. Well, that, that's, that's my personal opinion. Um, you know, I know that not all of our membership was, was happy about this proof of vaccine mandate, but I have worked closely with the city officials and uh, have a very good working relationship with the health officer, Dr. Phillip. She worked to try to communicate to these folks. I reached out to the head of the Fisherman's Wharf Business Development uh, Group. They tried to speak to numerous people. This was clearly a decision um, that they didn't want to have to put somebody there checking for for inside dining. And I would say that, you know, it's been a much uh, tougher uh, thing for independent restaurants um, who, you know, don't have most of their business to go fast food. Um, Many of the fast food uh, 
you know, uh, companies that are doing business in San Francisco have chosen not to open their indoor dining rooms because they didn't want to have to go through this proof of vaccine mandate, but everyone else has managed to make it work. And again, our goal is to be through this pandemic on the other side without having to wear masks and without having to have proof of vaccination once we get these kids vaccinated. We need the 5 to 11 cohort vaccinated. And then we also have people with severe immune uh, disorders that are put at risk by people eating inside in an unvaccinated situation. Lori Thomas, executive director, the Golden Gates Restaurant Association. Coming up, hearing aids may be getting a lot more accessible, and that may mean uh, a lot of companies that up to now haven't made hearing aids may start making them, and we'll tell you why. Yeah, this is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The FDA is in the process making it easier for people with hearing impairment to get their hands on hearing aids. Now, this might not seem like a big deal if you're unfamiliar with all of the hoops that people need to currently jump through to get a hearing aid. The first hurdle, of course, is the cost. Hearing aids cost on average about 5000 bucks a piece. Second issue is needing a prescription and several exams in order to get one. Proposed FDA rule would make hearing aids available over the counter. Dr. Devin McCaslin, Division Chief of Audiology at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So what do you think of this and uh, how long has there been a push for it? Oh, well, thank you, Mike and Charles, for having me on. And um, this has been an ongoing discussion in our profession and field for quite some time. Um, there is no question that this is good news. All of us want cheaper health care. It doesn't matter what type of health care you're getting. And this, this serves part of that. But I, I, you know, I, I question whether or not we need to disengage completely the health care professional. Okay, so th this uh, proposed FDA uh, rule, uh, do we have any, uh, any kind of sense when it goes into effect and will there be some caveats, for example, that might fold into it the need for uh, some sort of role of healthcare professionals? Yeah, great question. So what happens now is they've put it out there. The FDA has uh, given us some, uh, something to comment on. Uh, you get the comment on this proposal for about 90 days. Uh, then what happens is they will take those comments, go back, work with them for about 180 days, and then uh, come back. And uh, those, once the rule is then put into, I guess, law, uh, then they'll have uh, companies selling them online now or over the counter will have 60 days to comply. So you're looking at about a year before you're actually buying these directly off the shelf. Okay, so the pluses probably would be some more companies will make them or the prices will come down, access, obviously, for people who can go and get them over the counter. But talk to me about why, you know, you guys should still be a part of the process. Yeah, good question. Um, so what, there's three things we all want when we go get healthcare, right? We want the fastest and the most accurate diagnosis. And so if you're, hearing loss is a symptom. Until you've actually seen a professional, you don't have a diagnosis. And so... What you've got now is a situation where people are self-diagnosing, and while statistically most hearing losses may be due to age, uh, in this age range, 18 and above, uh, I'm in an otolaryngology clinic, ENT clinic, where we see ear disease every day, and the first symptom is hearing loss, and you can have tumors or autoimmune diseases or all kinds of things, and so, uh, you know, it doesn't really address that. Second thing we want is low cost. Absolutely, this addresses that in spades. The third thing we all want is we want the best outcomes, right? We went to a physician or we went to a healthcare professional and what we want to do is just, you know, get treated and go back to doing what we were doing. 
In this case, what happens if the hearing aid you know, doesn't work quite right, you've got a weird hearing loss, it can't fit quite right, what do we do with that? So I think it's three-dimensional. Uh, this really addresses one dimension, but I think we need to have some more discussion about how do we take care of the other two. Well, isn't there sort of a model in effect when it comes to reading glasses? I mean, you don't have to go to an ophthalmologist or an optometrist if you don't want to. And if you think that you're having difficulty reading, you can go into your nearest you know, pharmacy and pick up a pair of glasses. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And you may not necessarily know if your vision uh, loss is because of natural aging or because of some disease. That's exactly right. You may not, and I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I keep buying eyeglasses and I, uh, you know, I, I may have thyroid eye disease or something and I don't know. Um, so you're right. Statistically, it is probably going to help a lot of people and, and, and it provides access to underserved uh, people. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of good this can do because cost is a barrier. Uh, I would argue that the professional is not the cost, which, you know, I think there's some discussion around that, but, um, yeah, I mean, again, my vision loss as I buy eyeglasses is a symptom. Uh, again, it may be age-related, it may not be. And, and again, if you're sitting in a, you know, a large medical center seeing hearing loss patients come in every day, every day uh, with uh, serious ear disease, with hearing loss, it just makes you think. And so again, while not, you know, it is a small proportion, it does happen. Maybe it turns out to be some sort of a bridge, like if it's just starting, it's kind of bad, then you get some of these over the counter, it gets worse, something else happens, then we come see you. Oh, I think you're exactly right. I th in fact, I think they should have automated hearing tests in them that perhaps could say your hearing changed this much, you should go see a hearing care professional. There needs, you know, with AI and machine learning, uh, there's no reason that, you know, they can't give you sentinel data about maybe you need to go see a professional. And I'm hoping that that'll be in the discussion. Now, on the very, uh, I think, good side is that there is a lot of innovation waiting out there for the floodgates, so to speak, to to open. As I understand, places like Apple and, 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 and other companies that make, you know, uh, audio equipment are just really anxious to get into this market because it's lucrative to them, clearly, but also because they have the ability to innovate these products oh yeah absolutely i mean there's tremendous innovation these have you know artificial intelligence in them they can now have um imus like gyroscopes and accelerometers can detect falls um it, you know it, it's they're really becoming you know sort of these these health sensors now that we're wearing on our heads and so i i think that you know with this ruling you will see competition, you will see the price drop, you will see incredible innovation. And so um, I think the net is good, um, but again, I would, I would, I would you know, like to see healthcare professionals involved in you know, some of the, the diagnosis issues, figuring that out and also you know, what happens if it doesn't work for you and, what, and how do we address that in the system. All right, Dr. Devin McCaslin, Division Chief of Audiology, University of Michigan School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks again. Uh, more in-depth on the way, another half an hour. We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. The LA Zoo has announced its 20-year vision plan would transform the property into a partial theme park able to attract up to 3 million visitors annually by 2040. 
However, executing the plan would also gobble up about 23 acres of native woodlands in Griffith Park. And uh, some conservation groups are not happy about that at all. Here with us to discuss the environmental ramifications of this plan is Jerry Hans. He is president of Friends of Griffith Park. Thanks for being with us. So uh, we kind of already, I guess, gave away what the objection is. But if you can expand on, on what the objection is that you have. Well, thanks for having me, Mike and Charles, um, and thanks for bringing attention to this issue. Um, the project really is very ambitious. Uh, we want the very best care for zoo animals, and, and they should be placed first in priority. But there's just no good justification for destroying 23 acres of native habitat. What are some of the things they want to put on that 23 acres that in your minds, don't necessarily need to be there? Well, um, as it turns out, we ran the numbers and only 35% of that acreage will really be devoted to animal care. Um, the rest, of course, goes to amenities. Um, and there's extensive amenities that they will be adding to visitor centers. Um, that will host special events, uh, vernacular, uh, an aerial tram, a climbing wall attraction. And uh, because of the huge increase in the number of attendees that the zoo will have down the road, um, they will probably find it necessary to build a parking structure to accommodate 2,000 cars. But our big beef really is with the 23 acres. And uh, within uh, the two areas that will be developed, which is the Africa area and the California area, um, there are well over 200 protective native trees that will be eliminated. Uh, and these include oak and walnut trees. Uh, these are trees that are protected by the uh, city uh, city ordinance of 2006, the tree protection ordinance. And, um, you know, not a whole lot of that habitat is really going to go toward uh, animal care. I'm curious, can, can some of the trees be uprooted and, and moved elsewhere in the city? Because a lot of the city doesn't have a lot of good shade to begin with. Can some of those trees just be moved so that uh, the zoo can do sort of what it wants to do, but yet the trees are salvaged? Yeah, the, the, the problem is, you know, mitigation under um, the Environmental Quality Act, uh, environmental impact reports um, is, is, is all there for, for mitigating for tree loss uh, on a ratio basis, on a three to one, a five to one, or a 10 to, 10 to one replacement ratio. But what you can't replace is the entirety of that uh, woodland habitat. Uh, which includes the understory. Uh, it includes, you know, the oak duff and the detritus, you know, where we have the salamanders and, and other animals. Who gets to decide this? I mean, if the zoo wants to become more of a destination, more of an amusement park, because it's mostly like locals that go to the zoo. They don't get that many tourists. But if they want to attract the tourists, that's why they're going to do all this. And if they want to do that, um, they're going to try and do it. Yeah, they have 133 acres. Uh, Recreation and Parks spun off uh, 
uh, to to the zoo uh, and created. A, there was a, se a separate department um, created back in 1997, I believe it was. Um, so um, it it still needs to be um, signed off. Uh, it's already been signed off by the zoo commission, uh, but it has to be signed off by by the the council, the city council as well. Uh, fortunately, there are some alternatives, and one of the alternatives is, is uh, labeled number one, which actually protects uh, those 23 acres of, of habitat. And the zoo can do a lot uh, without uh, going into that habit, those habitat areas and expanding right out to their border. Um, and in this way, you know, it's a win-win. Uh, the zoo will still grow. It won't grow uh, under alternative one. It won't grow to 3.3 or 3.0 million per year in attendance, but their numbers project under alternative one still that it will grow to 2.65. Jerry Hans, president of Friends of Griffith Park. Jerry, thanks. And when we continue, diversity could be coming to the Grammy Awards. Listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Recording Academy has made promises for years to diversify the Grammy Awards, and for years, the cast and crew, predominantly white. But that could change thanks to a deal to include what's called an inclusion writer in the Grammys contracts. Agreement requires producers to recruit and hire more diverse candidates backstage and in front of the camera for the next Grammys, which is at the end of January 2022. Rashad Robinson is president of the civil rights advocacy group Color of Change, and he's worked with the recording. Academy to create the inclusion writer for Grammys contracts. Rashad, thanks for being with us. So I guess the question is, what took so long? You know, change takes time and it, it, it includes people inside and outside the industry um, pushing and challenging. Um, I think what's really important um, to recognize is the current leadership at the Recording Academy um, that has really um, taken um, the onus at not just um, moving a bunch of promises forward, but putting in real um, rules and putting in real um, concrete measures to move from sort of aspirations and words to real action. Could you quickly take us through some of those rules? What are they? So the inclusion rider is a, it's a concrete accountability mechanism sort of aimed at breaking through what is an endless stream of empty commitments. It, um, it's a contract provision that really sets forth a process for hiring and casting that will expand and diversify a candidate pool, um, encouraging the uh, hiring of qualified candidates and crew um, who have traditionally been underrepresented in productions. It's also gonna track progress and sort of force the reporting of that progress and create real accountability mechanisms. And so this, this tool um, and vehicle is being used um, in Hollywood and other places in the industry. And the inclusion rider in an industry that has so many unwritten rules that so often create barriers, the inclusion rider is it actually a written rule that actually spurs and moves us forward to um, getting real action on uh, diversity and all of the words that come behind diversity. Many agreements such as this one require, at the end of the day, some degree of compromise. Was there some compromise on this? Um, you know, there's always going to be a back and forth in each industry to really get 
things right, to sort of meet the, um, the kind of unique dynamics of the industry with um, employment law, um, uh, civil rights law, all of these pieces are part of the conversations. And so, you know, the work that we've been doing with the Recording Academy is not just um, is not just defined by the work that we've done around the inclusion writer. The inclusion writer is one tool that's part of a broader framework called the Change Music Roadmap. And we have been building out these roadmaps um, since the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd across various industries where um, folks have been saying Black Lives Matter. And then we've been going in and really working with industries to say, it's not enough to have a statement. You actually have to put some real measures and actions behind that. My goal in all of this, our goal at Color of Change is five, 10, 15 years from now, we just don't have the words um, that have been stated about how people care. We have the action and the real impact that aligns with that. And the Recording Academy um, very early on reached out to be a partner in this. And along the way has been part of the co-learning and the co-building to make this possible. And bringing along all the stakeholders that are part of their network to achieve that and change does take time, but change requires leaders um, on the inside and outside to do that. And that's, I think, what we're um, excited about. Um, change is also about the impact that we see at the end of the day. And so while we're celebrating the importance of this inclusion rider, we should make no mistake that we will be um, continuing to be monitoring the success of this and really um, holding up um, the results as the true standard for um, how we view this process. Is it for actual hiring or is it just for being considered? Like you get your foot in the door for the interview and then maybe the needle moves, even if you don't get the actual job, or is it is it the first one? Like making sure that candidates are actual, actually working there. Well, you know, part of what we've known from, um, you know, rule, part of what we know is that diversifying the candidate pool, removing some of the barriers that have oftentimes excluded people absolutely opens those doors, right? And, 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 and consistently has led um, to uh, people being able to have opportunities. When folks can compete on a more level and open playing field, the opportunities for people to win and succeed just um, you know, increases. And so part of what we will be tracking is not just um, how many people uh, get opportunities to be seen in interviews, we will actually be tracking the real numbers of what this leads to in terms of results. Because along the way, we need to be monitoring and looking at all of the places in which um, challenges may exist in um, meeting the sort of words around diversity with the results. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about monitoring, because I'm thinking, for example, of the uh, Motion Picture Academy and all kinds of promises were made about diversity. And then at the last Academy Awards, there was a lot of criticism that a lot of that, uh, the attempts for diversity seem to have been kind of tossed out the window. Yeah, and no, I, mean, I think I think that that's absolutely a challenge. You know, we we hope that the um, academy, um, uh, Motion Picture Academy, will also sort of join us um, in efforts to um, both um, engage in inclusion riders, um, engage in the ongoing work to uh, deal with the voting base, deal with the rules and the structures. We say a, a lot about inequality, and what I oftentimes fundamentally believe and what we believe at Color of Change is that inequality isn't unfortunate like a, a car accident. It doesn't just happen. 
it's manufactured through a set of choices, through a set of rules. And so the goal here is to actually deal with those rules, to not create charitable solutions, but to actually deal with the structures um, and the barriers that are actually um, preventing us from achieving true equity. Um, and that um, is why this rule, that is why the roadmap, that is why having partners on the inside and the outside is so critical to us actually achieving um, the results that we believe that we should achieve, especially inside of industries like um, Hollywood and music in particular, an industry that has um, benefited so much from the brilliance and the creativity of black folks and people of color and folks of all walks of life to then have people um, excluded from um, full participation in the commerce, right? I know sometimes people, when we talk about these award shows, they say, well, this is just about awards, but no, this is about an industry that creates structures and systems that hold up and uplift um, different types of talent. And that then leads to people having more doors open for them, more opportunities. And when doors are shut, or communities are excluded because of those rules, we have to change that because this is not just about whether or not someone is celebrated. This is about whether or not people can make a living. This is why that people can be fully part of an industry and fully share their talents with the world. Rashawn Robinson, president of the Civil Rights Advocacy Group, Color of Change, works with the Recording Academy to create the inclusion writer for the Grammys contracts. Rashawn, thanks. That's in depth for today. Back tomorrow at 1 p.m.